Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 514. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. It's getting close, isn't it? It's getting close. <laughs> if you're into Christmas, it's getting very close. We have been chucked up playing around and decorations and all sorts is November. If anyone knows from old shows, my wife's keen as anything to get them decorations up. So big thank you to all our PayPal subscribers and Patreon listeners there. Couldn't do this show without you. And if you want, if anyone's out there and wants to kind of help carry the burden and get these shows ad-free without any interruptions, just the, the, the pure raw essence of science fiction, pop over to Patreon there. There's little as $2. I sound like one of them. You know what I mean? I just had this instant flash there. You know, one of the kind of manic preachers on the on the corner of your, your kind of local high street with a, like a little tatty old book in his hand. Come on, see the Lord and come and support. So... Yeah, there's me. <laughs> Freaking coffee's strong, I tell you. It's the. <laughs> you know, when you kind of. You just. I just talk. You know what I mean? I just kind of talk into this mic. And it's just bizarre what kind of sometimes comes out. But, anyways, I'm always kind of thinking of, of little <laughs> things. You know what I mean? I was in the in the shed, in my shed. I've got a big shed. Yes, oh, you've got to have a shed. And there's just so much. Shit in there, man. So much crap in there. God, years of kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, that would make a great podcast. What's in my shed? Do you know what I mean? And like you say, there's little bits and pieces in there. And I could talk about little kind of events in my life. Do you know what I mean? And just like different things. The dog's throwing shoes at us there. Now I don't know if you heard that bag. Anyway, man, where's this going? Cracking up. What a, what a show. We've got an interview today with our Jeremy. Our Jeremy Zal has interviewed Ian MacDonald, no less, author of River Gods and a whole load of novels. So we've got that to come to. And we've got a short story, The Order of Sanctity by Ian Creasy. That's all coming in today, sure. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So we're getting the main fiction and then we'll get Jeremy's story. The main fiction is The Order of Sanctity by Ian Creasy, which originally published in Asimov's. Ian lives in Yorkshire, England. He has published 70-odd short stories in various magazines and anthologies. On his website, iancreasy.com, he has a page for each story explaining the background. And his page for this story describes how it was inspired by J.J. Ballard. 
This is Ian's fifth appearance on the sofa. And back in the day, mind you, I can remember when I was having to do all the lifting and find the stories. Ian was, I'd I mentioned, I'd tapped Ian as well for that. So it's lovely to have Ian back on. Ian, sir, how are you doing? 70 stories, man. You're getting up there with the likes of Moorcock and the Hall of Ellison. The story is narrated by Danny Dahlia. Danny is assistant editor of the YA speculative fiction podcast, Cast of Wonders. And narrating story is just one of the things she loves to do. She is a retired roller derby player and current hobbyist soap maker. She hails from the crowded Long Island, but looks forward to living in the middle of nowhere someday. Danny, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Odor of Sanctity by Ian Creasy Every day, Dora felt guilty when she arrived at the hospice in the center of Manila. Francesco had forbidden her to come. Others need you more than I do, he'd said when he was still able to talk. She came anyway. Today, As always, she disembarked from the crowded jeepney into the smell of traffic fumes, garbage, and fried bananas from the street vendor. Beyond the hospice doors, the city odors disappeared, swallowed by the Olvac filters, and replaced by a soothing scent of apples. Dora walked upstairs to Francesco's room, which was small but comfortable. He needed nothing larger, there being no prospect of him rising from his bed. Born in Italy, Francesco had spent decades in the Philippines, his skin becoming almost as brown as Dora's own. Now, his withered body and sagging face looked like congealed fat from the bottom of a frying pan. Since the loss of his sight... Francesco's eyes stayed shut most of the time, but Dora could sense his body's tiny signals of wakefulness. As usual, she began her vigil by reciting a prayer. Sometimes, Francesco would cross himself afterward, but he didn't do so today. Perhaps he was too weak. After leaving a respectful pause... Dora began talking in a more conversational style. On earlier visits, she had already expressed her own gratitude for the mission's schooling and their support when she went on to study law, an undreamed-of luxury for the sixth daughter of a shantytown family. Now, she passed on some of the messages she'd received from friends and neighbors. Many people had cause to thank Francesco. Forty years ago, Father Francesco began teaching classes in arithmetic. He subsequently established a school, then later built a clinic, and a church, and a soup kitchen, and a shelter, and whatever he felt people most needed. To do all this, he founded an organization called MANA, an acronym which varied from English to Spanish to Tagalog, the precise words being less important than the practical help that the mission delivered. 
aside from regular publicity, which he defended as necessary to raise funds, Francesco's only vice was a fondness for card-playing. He was never without a pack of cards, whether to play at rummy or poussoy, or to use as a teaching aid for the smallest child who could count the pips on a deuce. Dora was doubly close to Francesco. Her mother had been his housekeeper, and Dora belonged to the last generation of children who saw Francesco teaching and ministering, before ill health and political machinations forced his retirement. Now, six years after he resigned, the people still remembered him with affection, although Manat itself was debilitated after losing its leader. Francesco had been described as the Philippines' own Mother Teresa, and had proved equally difficult to replace. As Dora relayed to Francesco the latest batch of messages and good wishes, she looked for a smile or other acknowledgement, but none came. She placed her hand on his neck to check his pulse. His skin was warm, and his sightless eyes opened in response to her touch. But when she spoke, even when she asked him to blink if he heard her, he didn't react. His hearing had failed. The hospice doctor had warned her that as his condition deteriorated, his senses would fade. Dora grimaced, horrified at Francesco's inert presence, his body a decaying shell, and his mind helplessly trapped. What a fate, to be blind and deaf in a dying body. How could she comfort him? Dora said another prayer. Even if Francesco couldn't hear it, heaven surely would. She prayed to St. Lorenzo Ruiz, the first Filipino saint recognized by the church, asking him to comfort Francesco, who was almost beyond earthly aid. Then, other words burst forth, words that could no longer be suppressed. Father, she said, you were selfish. No reaction came from the figure on the bed. Selfish, 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 cried Dora. When it all got too much, you quit. You knew we needed you. Everyone begged you to come back, and you wouldn't do it. If you couldn't, if your health wasn't up to it, then you should have named a successor. If only you'd anointed someone, it would have stopped all the squabbling and feuding. She paused, shocked at how much anger had come out. It wasn't only directed at Francesco. She was angry with herself for not saying all this much earlier, when he could hear it and act on it. She'd been loyal, thinking that he deserved a quiet retirement. But the longer she'd defended him, the worse things became in his absence. And why wouldn't you choose a successor? You said you had to withdraw completely and not interfere behind the scenes. Maybe that was true, 
but it looked as if you didn't want anyone else to replace you. You were the mission's public face. You were always the man on TV, the man in the papers. It was all you, you, you. It could never be anyone else. Yet it worked. Dora could imagine Francesco's riposte to her tirade. He would cite his success at raising funds and inspiring followers. He would point to everything that Mana had achieved. All the schools and clinics and houses, all the lives that had been transformed, including Dora's own. It felt terribly ungrateful to criticize Francesco. Without him, she would never have had an education. Now, she was only two years away from qualifying as a lawyer. Yet, with Mana a feeble remnant of itself, rudderless and becalmed, how many of today's children were missing out on the education Dora had received? How many shantytown dwellers lacked medicine, housing, solace? Dora did her best, volunteering as much time as she could spare to help people resolve bureaucratic tangles and legal disputes. But it's never enough, she said to Francesco's heedless form. However much I do, it never feels like enough. She wondered whether Francesco himself had thought the same feeling that no matter how much money he raised and how much good he did, it was never enough. Was that why he'd been so tireless at self-promotion? The door opened, and a nurse strode briskly into the room. For a moment, Dora feared that someone had overheard her berating Francesco, but it was only time for him to receive sustenance through the feeding tube. Dora always disliked watching this process, and since Francesco wouldn't notice her absence, she went outside to sit in the hospice's garden while she considered what she could usefully do. Even though Francesco hadn't heard anything she said, she felt guilty for criticizing him. She wanted to, somehow, apologize and atone. The garden was small, just a couple of benches either side of a lily-covered pond bordered with bougainvillea. Masses of white jasmine cascaded from a trellis fixed to the hospice wall. Dora inhaled deeply, relishing the scent. On the trellis, two olvac cones also absorbed the aroma. Her heart leapt as she saw the olvacs and realized their possibilities. Although blind and deaf, Francesco might yet retain his sense of smell. Dora reached into the jasmine blossoms, pulled the nearest olvac from its clamp, and stuffed it into her pocket. She returned to Francesco's room and waited for the nurse to leave. Then she examined the purloined olvac. The olvacs were a luxury of the moneyed classes. She'd seen them, but had never owned one herself. This was the harvester model, a conical intake fed odors into a storage bulb, which had a release valve for transferring the aroma to a dispenser. 
Dora held the Olvac under Francesco's nose and twisted the valve open. The sudden scent of jasmine was overpowering. Francesco's nostrils twitched. He could smell it. Dora sealed the valve, then opened the window to disperse the jasmine fragrance. She clasped Francesco's hand in her own and tried to figure out how she could give him some benefit from his sense of smell. What would he most appreciate? Memories were precious, especially to the old. The sense of smell had a deep connection to memory, with a marvelous power to evoke the past. What if she could find some sense from Francesco's life? In smelling them, he would be transported back to old times. It would give his trapped mind something to reflect upon and enjoy. Dora smiled, convinced that she had hit upon an excellent plan. It would be her last service for Francesco, the last comfort she could give him before he departed this world and received his certain reward in the next. The only problem would be finding the right sense. What should she choose? Francesco had started out teaching in makeshift shantytown classrooms. Did they have a specific smell? Dora's own memories of those schools didn't focus on any particular odor. Back then, the ambience had varied with whatever food vendor, or trash fire, or sewage problem dominated on any given day. That was before an American charity installed a network of Olvacs in the most malodorous areas, improving the environment by removing effluvial pollution. The smell of the slums had gone, although the actual slums were still there. Maybe something from Francesco's personal life would be better, like the card games he'd always enjoyed. Dora had played in a few of those, and she mainly remembered the cheap cigarettes that so many people smoked. If she defied the hospice's no-smoking rule and lit up a cigarette, would that be specific enough to convey the milieu? Or would it remind Francesco of other things than card games? People smoked in a lot of places, after all. In any case, the stink of tobacco was too unpleasant for a deathbed. What about Francesco's youth, before he came to the Philippines? Old people often said that childhood memories were the most potent of all. Dora, being only 23, couldn't personally vouch for this, but she knew no reason to doubt it. And she'd heard Francesco talk nostalgically of his childhood in northern Italy. The snow, the mountains, the pine forests. Surely he would enjoy being reminded of those days, if only she could find the right aroma to evoke them. She had thought it silly of herself to wear her best clothes to visit Francesco, even though he was blind. Now, Dora blessed the impulse. Only by wearing her best outfit could she have entered this upmarket mall, where security guards ensured that customers weren't bothered by the sight or smell of riffraff. CCTV cameras scanned the crowd, while Olvac sniffers analyzed everyone's personal odor for traces of explosives, toxins, drugs, and the like.
Dora gazed at the Million Sense Emporium's window display, watching the picture change from beaches to orchards to rose gardens as the appropriate odors wafted out. She was nervous because any Olvax imported from Europe would not be cheap. But she straightened her shoulders and strode through the door as if she visited every week. Inside, the shop had a neutral, scent-less atmosphere. Two women stood by the counter, talking to the shopkeeper about the latest fashionable fragrances from Hong Kong. Next to each rack of shelves, there was a touchscreen catalog. Dora activated one and began browsing through the huge variety of products. Natural odors from various environments, artificial scents created by perfumers and artists, specialist items with lengthy disclaimers. She knew she should navigate straight to the Italian environmentals, but she couldn't resist indulging in a little fantasy. If I were rich, I'd visit this mall every week. In a different world, I might have been a society lady chasing the latest trends, the hot new scents. And here I am, looking at the catalog. If I were rich and fashionable, what could I buy? Fashions were set by celebrities, of course. Dora touched the celebrity tag, and the screen overflowed with famous names, endorsing all kinds of fragrances. Some of the stars even sold their own body odor, the ultimate celebrity perfume. On impulse, Dora followed a link from an actress's own brand range to a list of films she'd starred in. You could buy Olvax for all these films. Time-release capsules released odors synchronously with the action. This had once been a mere gimmick. Before pheromone capture added genuine emotions to the mix, deepening the audience's immersion in the story. Dora's mood soured as she realized what else the catalog must contain. Delving into the specialist menus, she found bottled essences of fear, anger, bewilderment, disgust, all harvested from human sources. Some of those sources might be Dora's friends. Destitute shantytown dwellers sometimes sold themselves to be milked for pheromones. But they had to experience an intense stimulus to produce the required reaction. A horror film Olvac contained the genuine fear and terror of impoverished, desperate people. This was what Manaf fought against, the hardship and lack of options that led to such degradation. When investigating employment disputes, Dora had seen quota-based contracts that took no account of desensitization, meaning victims had to endure ever stronger triggers to produce the same quantity of pheromones. Supposedly, it wasn't torture if the employee had signed a consent form. Abandoning her tainted fantasy of wealth, 
Dora returned to the task that had brought her to the shop. She selected the natural category, then European, colon, Italy, and skimmed through the entries. Pine Forest, Lombardy, one in stock. They had it! But the catalog displayed a price that made her flinch. She didn't have nearly that amount. If she went home, she could perhaps scrape it together from friends and neighbors, if they knew it was for Francesco's benefit. Of all those who'd given her messages of gratitude to relay to him, surely some would contribute to help ease his passing. Yet a doubting voice in her mind spoke with Francesco's resonant tones. Is that really the best use of their money? They have little enough of it. She knew that Francesco would disapprove, saying he didn't need this gesture. He'd tell Dora and her friends to keep their money for more important things. Dora clenched her teeth in frustration, uncertain what to do. Can I help you? asked the shopkeeper. Andres, the other women had called him. They'd spoken in English, but he addressed Dora in Tagalog. Yes, you can, Dora replied, and gave Andres her best smile. I need to buy this, but I can't afford the list price. Is there any room for negotiation? It's not for me. It's for Francesco Pizzati. She hoped the name would still carry weight after Francesco's years of retirement and obscurity. The shopkeeper was middle-aged and a Filipino like herself. Surely he would remember. Francesco Pizzati, he repeated. Father Francesco, from Mana? Dora nodded. Andres gazed at her with suspicion. If it's for him, why isn't he buying it? Because he's dying, Dora snapped, then regretted her tone. She needed the shopkeeper's goodwill. In a softer voice, she said, He's on his deathbed, and he's already lost his sight and hearing. I want to give him a scent from his childhood, something to soothe him as he passes away. But because he grew up in Italy, it has to be one of these imports in your catalog. I see. It's a sad situation, and I'd like to help, Andre said. Still, I can't give the stock away, otherwise I'd go bankrupt. I can let you have a discount of, say, 20%, if it's truly for the church. Dora recognized the opening offer of a haggle. I'm very poor, she said. I don't normally come to shops like this. I grew up in the shanty towns where Francesco did his holy work. I can give you 5,000 pesos, and that's all I have. The gulf between the two offers was enormous. Andre spread his arms as if helpless and said, I can discount my profit, but I can't sell below cost price. An uncomfortable pause followed. Dora couldn't afford to increase her offer, but she wouldn't leave the shop 
until she had to. Father Francesco was very popular in his time, the shopkeeper said in a contemplative tone. Dedicated, incorruptible, almost saintly. Wait here a moment. Andres disappeared into the stockroom for a few minutes, then returned with two Olvacs. He put one of them on the counter and said, That's the Italian pine forest. You can have it, in return for one small favor. The other Olvac looked like the conical harvesters on the trellis in the hospice garden. All you need to do, Andres continued, is put this in Francesco's room, as close to him as possible, and make sure the intake isn't obstructed. Then, after he dies, bring it back here. That sounded simple enough, but Dora couldn't understand the reason. It's a scent collector, isn't it? Why would you want to harvest the smell of Francesco's room? If I've already opened the other one, it'll just smell like a pine forest. Not quite. Because you'll have released the forest scent before Francesco dies. The shopkeeper's voice tailed off as if he expected Dora to realize the implication. But she was baffled. I guess you haven't heard of the odor of sanctity, Andres said. Dora recognized the phrase from stories about heroes in the history of the church, but she couldn't recall any details. Francesco's teaching had focused more upon modern, practical issues. Andres continued, it's not something that the church emphasizes nowadays, but in my line of work, well, you might say I have a professional interest. Trying not to sound snappish, Dora said, What do you mean? In the Middle Ages, and sometimes more recently, Andres explained, there are many accounts of saints producing a heavenly aroma from their corpse after their death. Obviously, this is only hearsay, because there was never any way of actually preserving such an odor, not until the invention of the Olvac. Dora struggled to absorb this. But Francesco isn't a saint, she said at last. He's a good candidate, Andres replied. And remember, whenever someone is canonized, that's only a declaration of sainthood. It doesn't actually make them a saint, because they were always a saint, even before canonization. The declaration is just paperwork, the official recognition. Our modern procedures are more bureaucratic, but in the Middle Ages, many saints arose by acclamation of the faithful. The presence of the odor of sanctity was sometimes cited as evidence of sainthood. The shopkeeper had an eager gleam in his eye. Dora wondered how seriously to take all this. The thought of Francesco as a saint was disturbing. Saints were remote, abstract figures, whereas Francesco was a real man with foibles and flaws. Right now, her priority was to comfort Francesco while he yet lived. Anything else could be dealt with later. 
All right, she said. I'll do it. Andres gave her the Olvax. Before she left the shop, Dora couldn't resist asking, What's the odor of sanctity supposed to smell like? In the old accounts, it's often described as something like roses. But who knows? Andres shrugged. It's a heavenly phenomenon. And we only have an earthly comparison. Dora hurried back to the hospice, where she was relieved to discover Francesco still alive. As soon as she thought this, she felt guilty. You wanted him to be alive because you went to all that trouble to get the Olvac. But it would be kinder if he died already. It must be awful to slowly expire like this. The imported Olvac was a cylinder with a picture of trees on the front and some writing in, she assumed, Italian on the back. She cautiously opened the release valve at its lowest setting. A faint scent emerged. It was cool and fresh, the kind of natural odor that she associated with parks and gardens from the rare occasions she'd visited such places. She had never been inside a real forest. She opened the valve a little wider and wafted the cylinder under Francesco's nose. His nostrils twitched. For a little while, there was no further reaction, and Dora felt a crushing sense of disappointment. But slowly, almost imperceptibly, a smile appeared on his wrinkled face, as if he drifted into a pleasant daydream. With gladness in her heart, Dora said a prayer of thanks. She sat down in the visitor's chair for the start of another vigil. Only then did she remember the other Olvac. She took it out and frowned. Something about it made her uncomfortable, but she couldn't pinpoint her objection. Perhaps it was the way that Andres had initially been reluctant to give her the Italian fragrance before changing his mind when he thought of the odor of sanctity. Yet, whatever the shopkeeper's motivation, Dora had made an agreement with him. If she went back on it, that was tantamount to theft, since she'd already used the forest scent. She shook her head, wishing she hadn't accepted the bargain so quickly. Now she was stuck with it. She found an out-of-the-way spot underneath the bed and left the Olvac there to gather whatever scent it could collect. Then she settled down to wait. Every hour or so, the nurses came to check Francesco's condition, give him nutrition and hydration, make sure he hadn't developed bed sores, and so forth. Now that Francesco had lost his hearing, it was possible to talk openly about his situation. He's fading, said one nurse. God will take him soon. Previously, Dora had only visited during the day, but now it was time to stay until the end. She sat with Francesco, clasping his hand, and very occasionally for she didn't want to overdo it, giving him a sniff of the pine forests of his childhood. Throughout the afternoon and into the evening, numerous visitors arrived to pay their respects. 
Francesco had already received the last rites, but the hospice chaplain came again to offer final prayers. Many of these visitors, who likewise held Francesco in high regard, might have stayed for longer. But the room was small, and Dora, by virtue of having begun the vigil, was tacitly acknowledged to have the right of seeing it through. Outside, darkness descended. The hospice grew quiet, and the flow of visitors ceased as the doors were locked for the night. Francesco slept. Dora yawned. Against her will, she found herself becoming a little bored and impatient. She grimaced and tried to push away such disrespectful thoughts. She yawned again, and suddenly it was daylight. Sunshine streamed in through the open window, along with traffic noise from the street below. The room was full of purposeful bustle as doctors came and went. A trolley arrived, and a sheet-wrapped bundle was carefully lifted from the bed. He's dead, Dora exclaimed. You should have woken me. A nurse said kindly, He passed away in the night. We found out when we made the morning rounds, and by then there was no point in waking you. We thought you needed the rest. The orderlies stood aside from the trolley to allow her a glimpse of Francesco. He looked so small. Perhaps it was only her imagination, but she thought that a faint smile still lingered on his pale, careworn face. Even as her tears started, she clung to the hope that she'd done enough to lighten Francesco's final hours. A hand touched her shoulder. Enough now. There'll be a viewing later, in church. Numbly, Dora retreated. The trolley disappeared through the door, and everyone dispersed. Dora was left sitting in a chair in an empty room. She let the grief wash over her. Francesco was dead. And this wasn't just the end of his own life. His mission had improved the lives of thousands of people. What would become of Mana now? The organization had become paralyzed, mired in futile squabbling over diminishing funds and conflicting priorities, while everyone hoped Francesco would come out of retirement and lead them forward. Now, the mission needed a new face. In the meantime, there was still work to be done and people to be helped. Dora got up to leave. Then she remembered the olvac she'd placed to capture the odor of sanctity. She hadn't noticed anything when she woke up. But by that time, someone had already opened the window, and any scent might have dissipated. Who had been the first to discover Francesco's death? She should find out, and ask them whether they'd witnessed anything unusual. But it might be difficult. Unlike in the Middle Ages, people nowadays were so accustomed to pleasant smells, 
whether perfumes or air fresheners or Olvax, that they ignored them out of habit. And how could anyone distinguish for sure between the odor of sanctity, if it existed, and the residue of the Italian pine forest, the white jasmine, the apples, and all the other scents inside the hospice? Under the bed, the Olvac lurked. It should have collected any scent that appeared during the night. Its contents could be analyzed, molecule by molecule. If there had really been an odor of sanctity, then its presence would have been recorded, assuming that the odor was a material phenomenon rather than a heavenly influence upon the senses. Oh, just open it already! There was no sense in speculating when she could easily discover whether the Olvac had collected anything. Curiosity burned inside her. She closed the window retrieved the Olvac from its hiding place, and unsealed the release valve. A fragrance emerged, a sublime aroma reminiscent of roses and spices with rich undertones that she couldn't name. Suddenly, the world was delicate as glass, holding people like flowers in a finely crafted vase, and Francesco was a withered bloom whose soul survived in a scent that permeated the universe and floated up to heaven. Dora was a neighboring flower in that vase. For a moment, she experienced the sense of rightness she sometimes felt in church, when the choir's voices attained such harmony that the music seemed to exist of itself, saturating the air as though she could breathe it in and need no other sustenance. The odor of sanctity. Francesco was a saint, and this was the proof. Dora quickly closed the Olvac, then knelt and uttered a fervent prayer of thanks for being privileged to know such a holy man. She put the Olvac away carefully, reverently. It took a few minutes for her attention to return to humbler concerns such as her rumbling stomach. She left the hospice to get some food, as she hadn't yet eaten today. The smell of fried onions, normally so tantalizing, seemed mundane and coarse after the heavenly aroma she'd just inhaled. Soon, she found an unwelcome skepticism creeping into her mind. Why was the odor of sanctity so strong in the Olvac when she hadn't noticed it in Francesco's room? Perhaps it had quickly dissipated after Francesco's death. Or perhaps it was never in the room at all. Perhaps it had already been contained within the Olvac. She'd assumed it was empty when Andres gave it to her, but she had no proof of that. Could the odor have been faked? Not just the smell of roses and spices, but the momentary transcendence she'd experienced. Maybe it had been some kind of drug. Or maybe it was just another of the bottled pheromones in the Emporium's catalog, harvested from those Protestant churches where ecstatic worshippers spoke in tongues and received visions 
in a kind of religious fever. As soon as she thought this, she berated herself for being doubtful and cynical. Any miracle could be explained away if you were determined to be skeptical. Why should it be false? Well, why would Andres create a fake version of the Order of Sanctity? Presumably so that he could sell it. He was a shopkeeper, after all. Dora frowned as she considered her dilemma. She had agreed to return the Olvac to Andres. He would then, she assumed, seek to profit from it in some way. Dora felt an instinctive distaste for this, and she was strongly tempted to break the Olvac wide open, letting its contents disperse on the wind. But if the odor of sanctity were genuine, then disposing of it would be disrespectful, perhaps even blasphemous. The Olvac might be a saint's relic, of the kind that the church prized. Many of Manila's older churches had relics in their altar stones. She couldn't decide what to do. Yet, she didn't need to act straight away. Her decision could wait until the community had mourned Francesco. Dora returned to the hospice to inquire about the arrangements. The body would arrive that evening at the church of St. Teresa Margaret for two days of public visitation before next week's funeral. Dora headed home so that she could change her clothes to dress entirely in black. She kept the Olvac in her pocket, unwilling to be parted from her relic of Francesco. She would wear black for a year in his memory. St. Teresa Margaret was the church that Francesco himself had built thirty years ago when his mission began to grow in the shanty towns. Consequently, it lacked the grandeur of the older churches in central Manila. Nevertheless, it was Francesco's spiritual home, and Dora was glad that he'd been brought here, where his people could easily visit him. Francesco had been laid out with all due ceremony, his body dressed in accordance with his request to be buried wearing the Barong Tagalog, the traditional costume of his adopted country. His white clothes contrasted sharply with the black apparel of the arriving mourners, emphasizing that he was already otherworldly, his soul as distant as his body was near. In this public environment, a frozen calmness enveloped Dora and suppressed, for the time being, any outpourings of grief. Sitting in one of the rear pews, she watched visitors slowly file past the coffin. She bit her lip as she saw the shopkeeper, Andres, enter the church. He approached the casket, peered inside, and crossed himself with every appearance of sincerity. Then he looked around until his gaze fixed on Dora. I'm sorry for your loss. Andre sat down next to her. I heard on the radio that Francesco had died, so I came to offer my respects. That forest scent I gave you, did it ease his final hours? Yes, it did, 
she admitted. That's good. He paused and shifted in his seat to face Dora. You remember our agreement, I'm sure. Did you put the Olvac in Francesco's room? Unwillingly, she nodded. Was that an empty Olvac when you gave it to me? She demanded. Of course it was, he said, sounding offended at her implied suspicion. Do you mean it's no longer empty? Has it collected an aroma? There's something inside, Dora said. I wish I could believe that it wasn't already there before he died. If it was the genuine odor of sanctity, why was it so fleeting? Why didn't we smell it the next morning? Why doesn't it still attend his body even now? Andres spread his arms wide. I can't answer that. It's God's will. He leaned forward, his eyes glittering with excitement. If the Olvac has preserved the odor of sanctity, we've been blessed with a miracle. But I'll need to check that it isn't just someone's perfume. Can I take a sample? I left it at home, Dora lied, fearing that Andres might snatch the Olvac from her hands. You tantalize me. I've been dealing in scents all my life, and I've smelled everything that exists on earth. How I long to experience an aroma from heaven. Unmoved by this plea, Dora let the silence hang. I hope you left it somewhere safe, Andres said at last. It's a priceless relic. Priceless indeed, said Dora. The church forbids the sale of relics. She'd learned this during her law studies. Since Francesco hasn't yet been declared a saint, it's not officially a relic, Andres said, in a tone of calm reasonableness. Yes, but as you so carefully explained to me, any saint was always a saint, even before canonization. So presumably, any relic was always a relic, especially if it's the evidence of sainthood itself. Andres sighed. You're naive if you think that relics never change hands in return for considerations, monetary or otherwise. Let's be practical about this. You have an opportunity to help a lot of people. I'm in the business of selling scents, and I can sell that Olvac for a good price. I need you to sign a certificate of authenticity, and in return, I'll give you half of the proceeds. You can easily think of excellent uses for that. You could donate it to Mana in Francesco's memory. I'll make a donation myself for my own share. Absolutely not, Dora said quickly. In her heart, she knew she'd spoken too quickly, reacting with instant revulsion, because she didn't want to consider the idea. She didn't want to wonder what Francesco himself might have said. The practical Francesco, who raised funds for schools, clinics, and housing. She knew she should cooperate with Andres and accept his payment. After Francesco's retirement, Mana had stopped growing and now struggled to maintain its existing projects. The shopkeeper's money would find many uses. Yet, 
she remembered the fashionable women demanding ever more exotic and expensive scents. They would only value the odor for its rarity, not for its sanctity. It's blasphemy, she said. How can the odor of sanctity be sprayed around at some stupid party? If those women want to use it as a status symbol while they gossip about hairstyles and boyfriends, it's demeaning. I won't allow it. Andres shook his head. It's not like that. There are other kinds of clients. If we have a miraculous relic, then obviously its natural home is the church. So I quietly sell the Olvac to someone rich who wants to make a grand gesture. He, or she, donates it to the church in the full glare of publicity. They get the glory, the church gets its relic, and Mana gets a hefty donation from the proceeds. Everybody wins. Really? Dora hadn't imagined such a scenario. Yet... It sounded plausible. Perhaps it was even reasonable. Still, she didn't know it would actually happen that way. She could only trust Andres to find a buyer of the kind he described. Why was she so suspicious? Why did she keep believing the worst of Andres? Dora realized she had no proof that Andres had any sinister intention at all. She only distrusted him because she suspected him of faking the odor of sanctity contained within the Olvac. And why did she dispute the odor? Did she disbelieve in God? No. Did she doubt that Francesco was saintly? No. She doubted because of the circumstances, because the odor hadn't manifested precisely how she thought it should have done. Put like that, it sounded presumptuous, as though she were reprimanding heaven. Maybe she needed a little more faith. Maybe it didn't even matter whether the odor was genuine. After all, that didn't affect the truth of Francesco's life or the worth of his mission. Perhaps she should give the Olvac to Andres as she'd originally agreed and allow him to raise some of the money that Mana desperately needed. You make a good case, she said, but let me see Francesco one last time. It was silly, of course. Francesco lying motionless in his coffin could hardly signal any approval or disapproval. Nevertheless, she felt impelled to take a final look at him. A hazy plan was coalescing in her brain. Approaching from the pews, she was on the opposite side of the casket to most of the visitors. No one could see her hand as it reached into her pocket. Surreptitiously, she cracked open the olvac. Its aroma began to waft over the coffin into the church. Soon, the mourners began to nudge each other and remark upon the scent. It's the odor of sanctity, Dora exclaimed, pretending to have only just noticed it herself. Francesco must be a saint! A ripple of conversation and argument 
spread among the crowd. New arrivals rushed forward, eager to smell the reputed miracle, and they began exclaiming in awe. A crush soon developed. The church wardens had to hurriedly form a barrier to protect the casket. The chant arose, "'Saint Francesco! Saint Francesco!' Dora smiled as she slipped away. The scent and the acclamation would create a storm of publicity. A perfect opportunity to revitalize the mission, appeal for donations, and continue Mana's work. Doubters might talk of Olvax, but believers would talk of heaven. She felt that Francesco, ever the self-publicist, would have relished this attention. And since Mana had never been effective under anyone else's banner, Francesco's elevation was the only answer. Even after death, he would remain Mana's public face. If Francesco's organization couldn't function without him, he'd had no business resigning. "'Your retirement is over, father,' she said. "'Get back to work. You're not just a figurehead. If you're a real saint, then you can work miracles.' and every miracle will create more publicity, more donations, more benefit to the poor. Dora closed the Olvac before all its contents escaped. It was a true relic now, destined for the altar stone of Francesco's church. As she walked from the churchyard to the street, a hand grabbed her shoulder. Nicely staged, said Andres. But you broke our agreement, and you lied to me. Is this the kind of behavior that Francesco taught you? I'm sorry. It was such a good opportunity, I couldn't pass it up. And really, if you cared about poverty as much as you care about profit, you'd understand that. Oh, I do understand it. But your little stunt won't work if I announce that the odor came from my shop, not from heaven. Dora stopped dead, anxiety washing over her. If he made enough of a fuss, Andres could ruin everything. She tried to project bravado as she said, God doesn't have to intervene directly. He works through us. Even if you claim that you created it in your shop, who's to say that you weren't inspired by God? Yet even as she spoke, she knew it wasn't enough. Skeptics? would seize any excuse to doubt. If Andres denounced the odor as a fake, Francesco's sainthood would evaporate, and so would Mana and all its good works. Besides, she did feel guilty. I know I promised to give you the Olvac, she said, and I will. After all, you can say that you happen to be carrying an empty harvester, and when the divine aroma appeared... You managed to capture it. Yes, of course, said Andres. That was exactly my plan. He held out his hand for her to return the Olvac. Not yet, Dora said. What matters isn't the Olvac itself, but what's inside. And, really? There's no reason it has to stay in just one Olvac. She remembered Francesco's arithmetic lessons, and how he'd explained that there was no largest number and no smallest fraction. 
you could always divide further and still have something. I need some of it as a relic for the altar stone, she said. As for the rest, how about we agree that you can do whatever you want with it, as long as half of the proceeds go to Mana? I'll trust you to maximize your profit and thereby maximize our donations. Andres smiled. When I made that offer earlier, you declined because, as you so carefully explained to me, the church forbids the sale of relics. Have you changed your mind already? Only because you gave me no choice, Dora snapped. We'll draw up a contract tomorrow morning. After we've signed, I'll give you the Olvac. He might not need it. If Andres had created the scent in his shop, he already knew the recipe and could manufacture as much as he liked. Yet, he'd only said that he could claim to have concocted the odor, not that he actually had done. Perhaps it was self-delusion, but Dora wanted to believe in the possibility of a genuine odor so as not to collude in profiting from something she knew to be fake. Reluctantly, she shook hands with Andres. He departed with a jaunty stride, no doubt thinking of new products to sell. Dora began making her own way home, her head full of misgivings. Although she said that Andres gave her no choice, it wasn't strictly true. She could have defied his threat to denounce the odor. Indeed, she still had that option. She hadn't yet signed a contract or relinquished the Olvac. Should she take the shopkeeper's money? The equation hadn't changed since Francesco's time. In order to raise donations, Mana had to submit to the cult of publicity and all its attendant compromises. If the cause was worthy, then so were the sacrifices. Francesco had believed in that cause. So did Dora, and now she better understood the pressures that had driven him. She could already imagine the Emporium's new catalog, as fashionable customers asked Andres for the latest novelty scents. Francesco had always been a tireless self-promoter in the cause of fundraising, and now he would have his own celebrity perfume. Maybe some of his saintliness would rub off on its wearers. That really would be a miracle. But God doesn't have to intervene directly. He works through us. Dora felt an electric sense of purpose filling her as she realized her task. She needed to reach out to the customers who bought Francesco's scent and convert their superficial whim into something more meaningful. After expressing gratitude for their donation to Mana, she would flatter their sense of piety, appeal to their better nature, explain what else they could do. She would transform them from purchasers of sanctity into paragons of it. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ian Zian, sir. Thank you so much indeed. And Danny. It's lovely to have you on. Thank you, Danny. Because I know you'll be kind of swamped anyways over at Cast of Wonder. So listen, big thank you, Danny. It's really appreciated. So, got a young, young fella. Young Jeremy there. Got, got his shirt and tie interview. You know, got his shirt and tie on. 
This man is a little bit after shave there. He's pinching his dad's after shave, you know. He hasn't got his own yet. <laughs> Kill us, fellas. I want to just big, give a big hug to Jeremy as well. He's had a bit of a crappy couple of weeks there. So, Jeremy, I'm thinking about you, big lad. So, this is a great interview. Please have a listen to this. This is Jeremy sitting down with none other than Ian MacDonald, the author of River Gods, The Dervish House, Luna, New Moon, and Luna, Wolf Moon. Jeremy, take it away, lad. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. I'm Jeremy Zahl, your ever-loyal fiction editor over here at this fine podcast, and today I'm interviewing Ian MacDonald. Ian MacDonald is one of the genre's finest writers. He's on the Hugo, Locus, and Philip K. Dick Awards for his work, mainly focusing on the future portrayals of non-Western societies in countries like India, Brazil, and Turkey. He's written over a dozen books, including River of Gods, Brazil, and The Dervish House, and most recently, Lunar New Moon and a sequel, Wolf Moon, which have both been optioned for television. He's also, as I found out at Worldcon in Finland a few months back, a rather excellent drinking partner. And today we're talking about the Lunar books, which are best described as The Godfather meets Game of Thrones in space. Now, that's a comparison that gets thrown around quite a lot, but this really is the closest thing we have to Westeros in space, and if you don't believe me, do pick them up and have a read. We discuss his choice of nationalities he put on the moon, how environments shape culture and personalities, and which beloved character he's going to knock off next. And what gin you'd order in a bar set on the moon. Ian is as wonderful online as much as he is in person, and I've been reading his books for half a dozen years now, and I'm very, very happy to finally have him on. This is a great conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, Ian McDonald, thank you very much for coming to Starship Sofa with us today. It's a pleasure to have you. A pleasure to be here. Thank you very much indeed. Accomplishment is witty and sane. I'll take that as a compliment. So you've been writing about developing Earth societies for longer than I've been alive. Why switch that up Mm. and go to the moon? It's, well, yeah, I mean, I... Yeah, I wrote a series about, I think, whoa, it's going back a bit now. Uh, River of Gods is, is about 14 years old now. And then there was Brazil and then the Dervish House, which is a bit more recent. And I was, I've been, always been interested in economic development in boom societies. And I'm still <laughs> writing about a, an economic developing boom society. It just happens to be on the moon. I've just moved it off Earth to a near neighbor, because I've always deep down loved moon-based stories. I think it's the, it's the whole idea of you can go out on that clear night and look up, you know, at a new moon and see lights up there and know that, human, that humans are visibly somewhere else in the universe is quite a kind of a, a powerful image. Always loved moon-based stories, always wanted to do something new and different with it and just a couple of ideas coalesced that Moon Bay story and Dallas had returned and on television shit but but it's Dallas (laughs) and and the two ideas just naturally coalesced and we have the beast um, the the beast that is Luna kind of came out of that that fusion of ideas unlikely combination but it's obviously worked it seemed logical um the beauty of Dallas, any kind of super, you know, Game of Thrones, the whole thing about that is where you have people who are trapped, you have drama, 
So it's, it's a great recipe for sitcoms, people who are trapped in a, in a relationship or a situation. It just it's, Usually it's being trapped by family or social constraints. I wanted to put characters in a place where they absolutely were trapped, where in a sense you can't get out of the game. And that just meshed beautifully with the whole, with the whole moon-based thing and, and the notion that you know, after a couple of years, if you try and get back to Earth again, it will kill you sooner or later, more likely sooner than later. Um, it just seemed a very, very fruitful avenue to explore, you know, put people in an extreme environment and see what survives of their humanity, for good or for ill. And running off from that, was there any, when you're writing the Lunar books, was there anything when you realised on the moon, we can't actually have this here, it wouldn't make sense, like in regards to plot or world building or whatever? The one that really kind of, um, it was the limitations on how long you can. Now, all my research for this book was done about 2012, 2014, when I was pitching and researching it. So my, so the science I'm using is from that age. I can't all of a sudden revise it without the entire, even though there probably have been more recent discoveries, I can't revise it that much without the entire book falling apart. But the whole idea of that you could only spend a certain amount of time before you had to stay or go is great. That's a, that's a ticking clock. And I mean, I worked for many years in, in television, in program development, in devising and pitching shows. And formats love things like that. Uh, a little format twist. There's a ticking clock on every character who goes to the moon. Do they stay or do they go? So they have a choice to make. And will they choose for themselves? You know, how will they choose? That's a beautiful thing to have ticking away in the background. And the whole gravity thing kind of means means especially that these characters are kind of double trapped. You're locked in there with each other. It's 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 the old it's the old hell as other people thing. Uh, I've always much more veered to hell as other people than hell as oneself. So I'm just writing about my own personal existential hell. On the moon, your families are from Ghana, Australia, China, Russia, and Brazil. Uh, how did you end up choosing this cultural melting pot, and and, and did it come with any unwanted cultural clashes? Uh, in a sense, unwanted cultural clashes are, are kind of what makes the whole thing work. I didn't want the usual suspect. I didn't want it to be the kind of Heinlein-esque, middle, you know, Midwest, you know, the future is America kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yet again, I wanted countries from developing nations. Uh, the Russian one was easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you just find a, a country that can, you know, can, you know, that privatizes its space launch facility quite easily. Um, China, obviously, as well. Um, Brazilians, I just, I, I, I just, I just like Brazilian culture very much. It, it intrigues me. I find it, I find it interesting to kind of interface with. Uh, Ghana, I wanted something from West Africa, but not Nigeria. Ghana's in a very, a very interesting country. It has a kind of, always seems to have a kind of sense of, in the same way that Ireland does, has a kind of sense of moral force about it. Ghana, in the same way that Ireland always seems, and Iceland seem to come with, with kind of moral force to them that outstrips their political or economic power. And I, I, I just like the idea of, of, of uh, a West African culture taking root, and like all the other cultures, changing. And the bad guys as Australians, because um, no one ever does Australians as bad guys. Uh, though in book three, you will get to love them. <laughs> I absolutely hope so, because as 
As an Australian, I do feel that we are criminally underrepresented as villains, considering we are a slave colony. So yeah. it's it's terribly underrepresented. So thank you very much for uh, diversifying, including us in your future. My pleasure. <laughs> and so in an interview over at Clark's World, you spoke about how environmental constraints define human behavior which then define culture. So when you're writing, do you start building your humans or your environment and culture first? Both, because these things kind of interactions between, um, you know, you know, between deterministic and social forces, these things always work together. It's, yeah, uh, put people in a world where you have to pay for oxygen, you know, where, where nothing can be taken for granted, where everything has to be earned and worked for that will impinge on existing cultures and change them in interesting ways. And I kind of like that. Um, I like the whole idea of a society where you, where you pay for all the things that we take for granted. What isn't said is what you don't pay for. And if you notice in the books, nobody ever pays for electricity because electricity is cheap on the moon. You don't pay for light, you don't pay for electricity. But you pay for data, you pay for water, you pay for air, and you pay for your carbon allowance. So it's so so it kind of changes. What's it like to live in a society that is material poor but energy rich? That's that's an interesting question. But the whole key to the whole thing is is Margaret Thatcher, alas. <laughs> With um, it, it, it kind of crystallised. I was kind of as I was planning the books out. Now she notoriously said. In a Tory party conference years ago, there is no such thing as society. There are only individuals and families. Okay, then said I. <laughs> okay, let's let's explore that. That actually works, <laughs> uh, which it does. That you know, there there is no society. There are only individuals and families. What kind of you know, what kind of civil culture can we have? How does that work? It's um, yeah, it's fun. So when you're building these cultures or societies, as you spoke about, do you start building your humans or your environment and culture first? Because I think there's this whole discussion whether humans are shaped by culture or culture shapes humans. Where did you, what did you do? I think I built, I built the world first. I had a look at the actual mechanics of, of living and working on the moon, what the constraints are. Where you put constraints around people, then you get something. Then yet again, you get drama. So I did kind of start with the physical, with with the physical aspects. Where are you going to live? Uh, domes, domes are no use. Dig deep, dig deep. And it's simple things like that: radiation. Whenever solar radiation, ultraviolet, gamma rays, you name it, whenever they hit lunar regolith, they kick off nasty secondary particles that travel quite a distance into the surface, uh, simple things like that. So if you want to get away from that, you dig deep. And that's why in in the cities you end up with with um, a society where, in a sense, the opposite of our cities, where in our cities the higher you live, the higher your status. On the moon, the lower you live, the higher your status because you're further away from the radiation. Simple things like that, that kind of affect the way that people live and work and arrange their society and it's quite fun to do um putting constraints determined by the environment and then seeing what happens you know how we adapt to it 
I guess, a choice to make your moon a cocktail culture full of martinis and doir and dirty sex was very deliberate, or did it involve the characters themselves? It was very deliberate because, <laughs> um, yet again, it's 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 looking at the technology and what you can do with it. Um, I, I got the cocktail thing fairly early on. Um, in that it's very inefficient to grow. It's one of the first things humans will do is make booze. Anywhere, <laughs> anywhere you go, humans will make booze, have sex, and find ways to get high. Absolutely fundamental of every human society. And, and of course, the first thing, you know, in the early days of the Seven, one of the first things about it is, 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 is where can we get booze from? And you can manufacture um, ethanol quite easily. Uh, whereas growing uh, growing wine, growing uh, growing wine, inefficient. Growing grain, then turning it into beer. Why, why would you bother? And from that simple observation, the whole cocktail thing came around. Likewise, fashions. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at the Pinterest thing, there's quite a lot. There's quite a, there's quite a lot of fashion on the on the Pinterest page. Fashion in big cities. Um, but if you can three D print your clothes. And it's a society where nobody owns anything. Everyone rents stuff. When you finish with your clothes, you throw them back into the hopper, they get taken apart, you print out something fresh the next day. You don't have a wardrobe, you just have clothes you wear every day. And if you can do that, if you're always printing out your daily clothes every morning, why not dress elegantly rather than the standard kind of, you know, the standard science fiction tatty future coveralls, you know, yeah. all that and that. Why not be elegant? So I, so I kind of thought, well, what about the 1950s, uh, for, you know, which was one of the world's, uh, well, 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 one of Western fashion's truly elegant eras. Uh, why not have everyone dress well? So they all dress exceedingly well. Um, book two is the 80s, which, um, despite what you think of it, and it's, it still looms large in my memory, um, there was a certain panache to the way people dressed then. Um, in fact, I think one of the first things you see in the book is when uh, Robson has his free-running accident. Uh, he's, he's, he's wearing a Frankie Says t-shirt, which, uh, which kind of pegs out to a certain uh, point. Um, book three, I'm going back to the 1940s. Uh, and I did, there's, a, there's a fair amount of research into 1940s, visual research on the Pinterest page into 1940s culture. And yes, I do have a character is rocking the land girl look from the 1940s, which is good stuff. <laughs> she's, a, uh, she's a new character, and uh, the book takes place in a new part of the moon as well. So. Although I am surprised that there was no Roaring Twenties uh, style or fashion that's come to the moon. I'm thinking about it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing stories uh, based around the, the world, and I mean, every sort of, I mean, the fashion changes so quickly. At some point, one of these stories, it'll hit, it'll, it'll hit the 1920s, which would be very elegant indeed. Um, yeah. uh, in in your previous novels, like River of Gods, Brazil, The Dervish House, etc., we'd have these massive run-on descriptions of buildings and landscapes and what have you, and these huge blocks of text detailing emotion and character thought. But in the Lunar books, it feels like the book's written in about a hundred mini chapters. Some of them are half a page long. The prose feels really tight and minimalist. Every word and every sentence has been cut back to minimal. Like every extraneous word has just been sliced off. And I'm going to assume this is not accidental and ask why. 
It's never accidental. Um, I wanted it to feel, uh, it's also written in present tense. And I liked present tense. Mm. Um, I mean, I mean, some people complain about it being, you know, it makes everything feel in your face and compressed and uptight all the time. That's exactly what I want for these books. I want the whole thing to feel absolutely under pressure all the time. And you kind of come out of it with a bit of a gasp saying, well, I want readers to feel like they've been holding their breath for 400 pages. So the sentences are very short. Um, there's a little literary trick in these books that nobody's noticed but me, but I, I still work. I, I still put it in there uh, because there's almost no animals on the moon except for a few pet ferrets and tiny bonsai cows, uh, um, designer butterflies, things like that. People who are born on the moon never use any animal metaphors ever. Um, unless they have some familiar, familiar uh, people who are born on Earth have come there, they do use animal metaphors. The moonborn don't use animal metaphors at all. And I want the prose to kind of sound kind of tight, constrained, and kind of under threat all the time. So yeah, there are, delib- there are deliberate word choices. There are deliberate sentence choices. Because of the way the story is told through a oral ensemble of characters, it kind of necessitates chopping up of that way. I want to get a continuity of time and action rather than following one character for, say, several weeks, then cutting back and following another character for that same space of time. I want to keep the timeline running without having to jump back and forward too much. And then I deliberately put rhythms into it in that all the books follow the same basic uh, story, story, flashback, story, story, flashback chapters or flash out, in this case, chapters, where I move the action somewhere else, just to kind of break up the flow so it doesn't become a relentless kind of pound of thud, 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 thud. You know, it's it's like having EDM in your ear 24-7. So I'll throw in those spacer chapters to fill in the details I can't do inside the main story and also kind of break up the rhythm of it. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's it's, it's all deliberate. Yeah, like I just asked, like, is it, it is it tiring, or you, do you have to have the discipline to do that? Because again, going back to something like River of Gods, where there's an entire page describing like the network of a building and a curry shop or whatever, and here it's just oh, yeah. done in two words. And there's like a character, you have a character arc in half a page, and a character death in half a page. Like, did you have to have self discipline to slice back on every extraneous word? The thing could run horribly long um, if I wasn't totally disciplined about it. I want there to be enough. So it, um, I'm a, I am a visual writer. I see I see stuff in my head, and then just I just write down what I see. It may be different for other writers, but that that's how it works for me. So I'm trying to get what I see as concisely but as richly as possible. What the uh, book three? I kind of redo. Do a couple of takes and couple of scenes from book one. The bit where it rains, I do that again, but from a totally different point of view. So it becomes a totally different aspect of 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 lunar society. It's like you know, it's it's impossible to describe a whole society completely and in full detail. So I have to be, I have to pick and choose. I have to make the images count. I have to make the metaphors count, and the scenes have to count as well. So every little scene has to do two or three things at the same time. 
Uh, yeah, I'm not asking much. That's probably why it slowed me down to doing about a thousand words a day on this, <laughs> because everything has to work at every level. Well, in my opinion, at least, I'm. I think you succeeded. Thank you. Welcome. So, and by the end of the book, that being Wolf Moon, which was a crackling read, there's quite the body count, bleeding dead bodies, and where any characters that were killed or injured that you really didn't want to kill, but had to let go because of plot? Not really, not compared to book one. Uh, book one, I, I, I did have to kill a character that I didn't want to, uh, right at the end. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, Spoiler, clack. Yeah, yeah. Um, in that, I, did, I didn't want to kill Carlino's quarter off because I liked him, but he kind of had to go. <laughs> so, so he, he, yeah, he gets uh, a slightly heroic end. At Wolf Moon, because it's kind of a war, it's kind of soft war, there's quite a high body count in that. And um, what I did for that, and I'm doing for book three as well, is uh, I tuckerized auction tuckerizations to support uh, Clarion West Writing Workshop. So um, (laughs) Neil Graham, who is the current director of of Clarion West, meets a very sticky end in the end of a (laughs) robot, and there's a couple of other guys as well (laughs) have have met met unpleasant fates. (laughs) I'd like to think I'm not going to end up in there, but I'm half hoping I do. I'll, if you want to put me in, I'll volunteer. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not free, this. It's expensive. You have to pay, but you will get a grade A termination. It's... I do hope so. And <laughs> speaking of the characters who die, is there anyone who absolutely can't die? Or is it, or is this Game of Thrones where everyone's expendable? Um, everyone can, I think. Um, not everyone does. It's not so much about the pursuit of power at all costs. Um, The main thrust of the story is we have a family, we smash it apart, we try and put it back together again differently. Doing that, it's, you know, it then becomes about who's going to sacrifice what for for the family. In some ways, my model is much more the Godfather part two than Game of Thrones. Um, it's the whole thing of Michael, you know, whenever Michael Corleone takes over the family, and he's, he, he has sworn to protect and defend the family. And, dis- and because of that, because he's done that, he ends up destroying the thing he has sworn to protect. And that's very interesting. And, and I'm, I'm kind of exploring aspects of that in book three. It's about what makes a family, uh, what different ways are there of being a family. Uh, it's interesting. As long as uh, book three doesn't turn into the Godfather three, I'm quite happy with that. I, there's no risk of that. <laughs> <There's no> risk. <laughs> and um, in a sense, that it, it's kind of set up in book two. Um, there's an inevitable conflict in it that kind of has to happen, and I'm gearing it towards it in a way that I had a good think about how to structure book three and. Um, Eventually, I went for Gladiator <laughs> because it reverses. Grateful, grateful. Are you not entertained? <laughs> um, in that it reverses the standard Hollywood uh, epic structure. You know, the, the same thing is you end up with a small personal conflict. You end up with a battle. 
you know, it's it's you know, it's like um, yeah, yeah, you know, the Lord of the Rings. You know, it's a guy who's a gardener who ends up with you know, ends up with Armageddon with the orcs. Uh, Gladiator reverses that. It starts the battle and ends up with a personal conflict. Mano y mano, emperor and gladiator, and I like that. And I'm kind of using that structure. Mm. Start with the battle, end up with, end up with eye to eye, knife to knife, and that's all I'm saying. The first two books both had not unusual uh, structures, but non-linear structures. Like there's a whole chunk in book two where it's very clearly in the past written in past tense uh, and book one had uh, entire sections that were written in first person while the rest of the book's in third is there anything yeah. like that in Luke, the next book? Yeah um, I'm, I'm, yes, yeah. those are the interchapters I was talking about um, they need to be there because there, there are key bits I kind of have to cover um, part of them covers it being from, from, from book two Part of those will answer the question of what happens to poor Lucasino Corta. Uh, I answer that, and I also want from uh, from the end of book three as well what happens to Marina. Um, right. When, when, because yeah, uh, spoilers. Spoiler alert. <laughs> because spoiler alert. Yeah, because she goes back. What happens after that? And so it covers those as well. But basically, they're, they're kind of, so so they're more flash outs and flashbacks, but. They they're an integrated way of kind of, of of kind of covering those bits that kind of don't fall exactly inside the main narrative. Mm. Outside of the lunar books, is there anything that you're working on after this, or is this just soaked up all your time and attention? It is. It's absolutely so. It's, it's, it's been soaking up my time and attention for about five years now. Wow. Um, and I am do, I am kind of writing a series of spin-off adjacent stories uh, story cycle actually because I like story cycles in the same way as Cyber Bad Days right. the stories spun out of A River of Gods this is the same but I um, um, I got the idea from a, I can't remember the name of the author some terrible names it's a fine Australian collection of short stories I think it's called The Body Surfers I can't remember the name of the writer really good short stories that are kind of linked around loosely around a family and an extended family, and I like the idea of that. So um, I'm, going to, I'm working on a series of kind of linked, tenuously linked stories around family, what that kind of family is, and what different forms of family they are. But it's kind of early days yet. There's been about two stories in the sequence so far. Is it going to be following the Cortas or some one of the other uh, different families? Nope, somebody else entirely. Not high level, Ooh. low level. Wait, that'll be interesting. Not the yeah, yeah, not the aristocracy. <laughs> okay. And when can we look forward to that, or is that still slowly processing? Slowly processing. I mean, right. I'll do it as a series. I mean, I mean, I'll do them as individual stories first if somebody will buy them, and then... Um, so, so it could be years. <laughs> it could be years. I'm a very slow story writer these days. Fair enough. Well, you do have massive books to work on, so... I guess you have reason to be slow. Unlike George R. R. Yeah. Martin, you actually have an excuse. So we'll forgive you. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I have a mortgage. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, in McDonald. I think that's all we have time for. But yeah, so Luna New Moon is available from Tor and Golance, and Wolf Moon just came out, and book three will be coming uh, March next year, if I'm 
led to believe correctly? July. 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 Right, July next July. year, which is about, uh, yeah, seven months from now. So please do go and buy them. They are excellent books, and Ian deserves every sale he can get. So yeah, Yay. So yeah, thank you very much, Ian, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on. A pleasure to be here. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. There you go, Jeremy. What can I say? Wow, man. Ian MacDonald as well, no less. Thank you so much. Gentlemen, use our stars. Thank you. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Listen, don't forget, if you want this show without ads, pop over to Patreon and it's $2 a month. $2, man. Oh, here. We're up to 301 As this, I tell you what, it goes up and it comes, you know, because people kind of leave, you know, that's the nature of the beast. So we passed 301. I was like, oh, we passed 300. That was a goal. And then within an hour, you know, it was like doing a little jig. It popped down again. So if you want to support her, that would be fantastic. We are aiming for, I'll tell you this now, we're going to do that show between Christmas and New Year. It's going to be a meta show, a show within a show. Yes, we're going to run the Silverberg shows, what we're going to start doing over there. I'm going to like put a little bit in, in this show. So that will be just for like a little difference on, on the Christmas, because it's a bit of a kind of hooky time that... That nowhere week, if you know what I mean, between Christmas and New Year. So have a look out for that. That'll be fun as well. So, until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. 